Calling All Birders. Join us from May 18th to the 21st, 2023 for the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. Don't miss the premier event for both amateur and seasoned bird watchers. Enjoy workshops, keynote presentations, and over 200 species of birds. Start planning your trip by visiting greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. That's greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I heard a fascinating story the other day, which I will share with you here. Do you all remember the Western Marsh Harrier that was seen originally in Maine, then again in New Jersey? First record for the ABA area, first confirmed, I should say. Lots of great photos taken in Maine, especially of this bird. I always try to be aware of the fact that vagrancy for most individual birds is a one-way trip. It's not unheard of for individuals to return year after year, but for the most part, a vagrant bird, especially one that ends up on a different continent, doesn't ever make it back to its normal range again. And that's fine, of course, the excitement that these birds prompt, the experience of seeing them, the community that grows around them, the potential birders that they make. It's all part of the game and certainly a positive thing in the end. But rarely do birds meet an end as dramatic as that Western Marsh Harrier, as we learned this week. This story comes from a U.S. Department of Agriculture newsletter passed on from Colorado birder Andy Banker. Thanks, Andy. On November of last year, a Boeing 737 on approach to Newark International Airport reported a bird strike 3,000 feet above the ground. After landing, a mechanic inspected the plane and found bird remains on the body, but no damage to the aircraft itself. The bird parts were then sent to the Smithsonian Feather Lab, which keeps a record of bird strike identifications, where they were determined to be, you probably guessed, a Western Marsh Harrier. No doubt, the same Western Marsh Harrier from Maine and later New Jersey, which was seen last six days earlier at a wetlands about 20 miles from the Newark airport. A couple things. Uh, one, what are the odds? They have to be unbelievably low that this bird, of all possible birds, of all the Canada geese and gulls that can be found around airports, especially ones in the Northeast, uh, would end up on the flight path of Newark Airport. And two, a Harrier at 3,000 feet. That's That's got to be one of the more bizarre aspects of this entirely bizarre story. What a dramatic end to a particularly dramatic rarity. It's not quite Ross's goal taken by a bald eagle in front of watching birders in terms of dramatic rarity deaths, but it's certainly one for the books, no doubt. On the show this week, I'm thrilled to welcome the Dean of Seabirding, Peter Harrison, author of Seabirds, A New Identification Guide, one of the most impressive bird books published in the last few years, perhaps ever. He joins me to talk about all manner of seabird topics, the past, present, and future of pelagic and near-pelagic birding. He is a delight. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last week of January 2023. One new first record to note this week from Louisiana, where an American black duck taken by a hunter at Lacassine National Wildlife Refuge in Cameron Parish represents a surprising first for that state. There are a number of reasons why a confirmed black duck had yet to be documented in Louisiana, the first of which being that it is on the very edge of the species winter range. Louisiana's coastal marshes, where such a bird would be most likely to be found, are also pretty inaccessible, and the presence of mallards and especially model ducks makes identification difficult. So it makes sense that a hunter would be the one to get that conclusive record, and kudos to them for recognizing what they had. 
Other birds of note for the week include Wyoming's second record of northern hawk owl near the town of Sublette. The state's first was only at the end of last year. And Oregon's third record of pine warbler was found at a public park at Klamath Falls this week. For as common as this species is as a year-round resident in the east, it's somewhat surprising that there are so few records west of the Rockies, but the fact that the species is a short-distance migrant probably limits opportunities for vagrancy. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. When it was first released in 1983, Peter Harrison's Seabirds was immediately hailed as a classic of the birding literature and accolade it is not relinquished in 40 years. And so it was with much excitement that Peter released the second edition of his book. And with all we've learned about Seabirds in the intervening period, it is practically a new book. Uh, Peter Harrison is an artist, an author, a conservationist, an MBE, and still perhaps the authority on the birds of the world's largest biome. It is a great honor to have him here to talk about his book and about these incredible birds. Welcome, Peter. I am thrilled to talk with you today. Hi, Nate, and it's nice to be here. I haven't been in your neck of the woods for about 30 years, so um, I'm looking forward to coming over in October as well and and giving that talk on the Alp. Are you? Are you going out to the Gulf Stream in October? yeah. Oh, that's very exciting. <laughs> it's a great it's a great place to look at seabirds. Uh, I've spent many hours out there and um yeah, it was it was actually where I was introduced to tube noses and birds that we think of as uh you know kind of the classic the classic seabirds. Uh, but I understand that your experience was was quite different. How did you come to learn about seabirds and and what were your first experiences with them? Um, Well, I would begin by saying that the sea has always been a huge part of my life. I grew up living on the edge of an ocean. My childhood was spent growing up in Brixham, a small but very busy fishing port on the southern coast of southwest England. I was surrounded by men of the sea, the noise of winches and pulleys, and the smell of diesel, fish, and tobacco. There was a small rough dirt track that led south from the village to a rocky point called Berry Head, a rocky point that overlooked the English Channel. This is a breeding place for seabirds. It was when I was a kid. It is these days. Nothing rare, but full of razorbills, common myrrhs, Atlantic fulmers, and kittiwakes. This is where my love affair with seabirds began. By my early teens, I was a regular but novice watcher during autumn gales at St. Ives in West Cornwall. There was one classic storm that stands out in my memory. It was a cold November morning. The wind was howling and screaming all around us. And below our position over the headland, the Atlantic roared inwards, dashing itself against the Cornish cliffs. The bay was a maelstrom of foaming white caps and black watery hollows. And above the troughs, with contemptuous ease, rode the gannets, line after line, thousands upon thousands, retreating like troops from a Napoleonic war. It was an absolutely mesmerizing sight. There was hardly a minute that passed without the excited call of Bonksy, Petrol, Skewer, or even Sabines. That changed my life. Ever since that storm, I have been an avid seabirder and have devoted my life to the study of these enigmatic and little-known birds, seabirds, birds that live where others can't, the open ocean. 
do you still feel that sort of, you know, impassioned love for these birds when you get to experience them even these days, many, many <laughs> decades later? Like, uh, do you still feel that when you look at them now? Absolutely, Nate. I am as excited now. Yeah. In fact, I'm almost tearing up here. I'm as excited now yeah. <laughs> when I look at seabirds and when I'm planning a trip. For instance, in just a couple of weeks, I will be going south to Antarctica, south to the Great White Very exciting. south to one of my favorite places on the globe. And I'm as, ex as excited now as I was 50 or 60 years ago making my first trip south to Antarctica. I'll share with you yeah. that I've been to Antarctica over 200 times, probably more than anybody else on Earth. And I'm already so excited. I haven't been down there for a year. I go every <laughs> year, but I still go down there with yeah. the eyes of a child. Everything is still fresh. It's still new. It's still exciting. And I will be keen to see my first albatross as I stand on that ship and head out across the Drake Passage into the stormy Southern Ocean. It's, it's always there. I've never, ever lost that feeling of wonderment, that feeling of being special, of being able to go where few others have been. And that is the world's oceans to sure. study these marvelous birds, some of which live as long as we do, some of which live to be able to fly many, many millions of miles. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware of this, but seabirds are the most itinerant life forms on the face of the planet. Mm -hmm. We talk of Arctic terns. They're not even in this, the, the real scope of, of Amateurs. such things <laughs> as albatrosses, birds that will spend something like over 500,000 miles or kilometers in their first year at sea and circumnavigating the earth several times. So seabirds for me have always been so tremendously exciting. Even now in my 76th year, I look at seabirds with the same same awe, the same wonderment that I did as a 20-year-old visiting the Southern Ocean for the first time. Seabirds are just absolutely so interesting and so wonderful to look at. You've, you say you've been to Antarctica 200 times. How did you learn about seabirds the first time that you traveled there? I imagine that it was quite difficult to learn about what you might see, that certainly the taxonomy is different. And how is it compared to how you learn about and how you prepare for such a trip now? Well, there's no doubt that in the early days when I first started seabirding, we didn't know anything. We, 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 and there was no <laughs> reference. There just wasn't any reference at all. Yeah. And if you look at birding and modern birding in particular, it's been around for just 50 or 60 years. And in the early yeah, 1980s, yeah. before the current explosion of natural history books, there were two groups of birds that were particularly troub troublesome and very, very difficult to, to, to swat off on and to, pre to prepare yourself for. And those, of course, were yeah. seabirds and waders. Um, in respect to seabirds, there was virtually no reference source to consult, not for the appearance of seabirds, not for where you might find them or expect to find them, or in particular, hmm. their biology. When did they breed? Were they winter breeders? Were they summer breeders? And how you could get to see them. Yeah. So seabirds were especially difficult because unlike most birds, they live where we don't go and don't want to go, most of us, right. which is the open ocean. Um, and so there was this, this black void um, where there really wasn't um, 
uh, an opportunity to seabirds. And even when they were storm-driven, seabirds being storm-driven in towards our coasts and passing headlands, mm -hmm. we would gather at headlands like St. Ives that I mentioned earlier, and we would be grouped there waiting for the birds to come. We knew what winds were necessary in St. Ives. It's a southwest-northwest wind that we need, a system. And in they would come. Uh, sometimes by their hundreds, sometimes by their thousands. But as a seabird, seabirds always at distance, always appearing and reappearing right. behind waves. as small specks jostling with yeah. unstable telescopes and so forth. And always, always the seabirds seemingly always in perpetual retreat, flying away from the observer, <laughs> never seemingly towards us and yeah. disappearing and reappearing behind the waves. It was absolutely frustrating. And of course, even when you got onto a ship, it was no better. Here you were on the decks of a ship. The ship was not stable. It was pitching. It was rolling. There was blinding spray yep. that was coming over the, 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 the bow. Nothing seemed to work. And of course, imminent nausea about to set in. So seabirding <laughs> is not easy. It takes a special kind of people or person to be a seabirder. And back in the 1980s, there just weren't those sort of people around. Not many of us anyway. Yeah. I could count on my two yeah. hands the number of seabirders that there were really in the world. But with the publication in 1983 of my new book, then Seabirds, mm -hmm. that opened the doors. And then suddenly seabirding became the thing it is of today. You know, you spent years you know, traveling, researching the first edition of that book. Um, you must have had some really extreme experiences doing so you know in the dawn of this scientific appreciation of birder appreciation of seabirds how did you handle not only the sort of difficult logistics of getting out on the open water frequently with boats that had interests other than seeking out the birds that were chasing them uh, but also the issues identifying all these birds that had never really been well described yeah well let's talk about being well described as I mentioned, there were there were modern guides just beginning to come online. Roger Tory Peterson, of course, the godfather mm -hmm. of our modern field sure. guides, and um, even before Roger Tory Peterson, there was a gentleman called W. B. Alexander. He wrote a small book called Birds of the Ocean. It's four inches it by seven book. inches, <laughs> four inches by seven inches. 306 pages yeah. and 140 illustrations, Nate, that um, are almost laughable um, by this day. Um, <laughs> things that you would never, never be able to identify. Um, just, just 140 of these black and white illustrations. We had no reference material yeah. whatsoever. And um, uh, to, to, to go by. Just that book published in 1928, it was over 50 years old, even by the time that the, the 80s and 90s came around. And so we were in the dark. And so we had to really do it all mm -hmm. by ourselves. I'm lucky in um, the fact that as long as I can remember, I have sketched birds. I've always been a little bit of an artist. Mm -hmm. And that was mainly because in the old days, there weren't books to look at. So if I went and drew birds, I would then take them into my local library and see if I could find anything that matched. Um, when the modern field guides began back in the 1970s, 80s, many of the illustrations were completed from museum skins. And when you looked at the books, you could tell 
because they were awkward. They they were awful. There was yeah. no sense of jizz. Yeah. There was no sense of sense of movement. Neck is stretched no out. The wings are in weird yeah. places. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. tell some birds would have had big heads and then small tails and vice versa. Right. And nothing, nothing Completely worked. Completely the discretion of the preparer. Yeah. Yep. And so what I was really keen to do when I first decided, I was walking to work one morning in 1972, 73. It was 72 on a November morning. Everything happens in my life in November, by the way. So on a November morning, <laughs> I was a civil servant. Can you imagine I was designing British embassies for a living? I was a civil servant, part of the Is dreaded right. Yeah. I was as much a civil servant as those guys in their bowler hats with their briefcases and brollies walking the halls of Westminster. And as I was walking to work, it suddenly struck me that I could be doing this for the next 40 to 50 years. There were people in my office. I, was, I designed British embassies. I was an architect. And there were people in my <laughs> office that had been there for 40 years. And I looked and I said one, one day, you know, designing I, the same building over yeah, and over I again. I <laughs> can't do this for the rest of my life. As much as I love it, <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it. And I decided there and then, my passion are seabirds, or birds, but seabirds in particular. That There's no book on seabirds. Why not devote your life mm -hmm. to writing a book on seabirds? And so that's what I did that one morning. There and then I decided that it was time to actually head for the open ocean. What I did was I had a small house in Croydon in southern England, uh, southern London, Mm -hmm. um, it was worth about 9,000 pounds, about maybe $15,000. I sold everything that I owned. My poor, my twin brother, Paul, thought I was absolutely, uh, had lost my marbles, <laughs> as we say in England. Uh, I told him that I was giving everything up. I was going to buy a Land Rover and I was going to drive around the world. He said to me, are you crazy? And I said, no, I'm a <laughs> seabirder. And I said, I'm about to write a book on seabirds. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, who do you think is ever going to read a book on seabirds? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know, but I'm going to try. And Nate, that, was, build it, start, that was the start of me driving around the world. I drove around the world for seven years, the best seven years of my life. I visited all yeah. seven continents, including the Antarctic, way back in the early 70s. And this was the beginning of me doing my research for seabirds. So there there you have it um that's what started me and i was i was absolutely determined that i wouldn't fall into the trap of just looking at museum skins i did look at museum skins mm -hmm. but most of most of the sketches for my seabirds first book in 1983 were all from field sketches because even in those days the camera had not actually elevated itself to the importance that it is today right. i would rather have a camera than a pair of binoculars if I'm out at sea, because I can capture the mm -hmm. image. More of that maybe later. Yeah. What was it like driving into these port towns all over the world and asking local fishermen to take you out? Like what what was their what was their reaction to this sort of odd Englishman asking to to just sit in on their boat and look at birds? Well, here's the thing. I never actually said to them that I just wanted to sit on their sh on their boats and then watch birds i wanted to get paid i needed uh -huh. I, I needed money <laughs> right okay fair enough it took me 18 months to drive from england through europe down through africa and i got down to cape town and i was desperate for a job 
The Land Rover in those days, by the way, brand new from the factory, cost me about $1,800, believe it or not. The same vehicle would be $80,000 these days. And I, I got nice down. Deal, yeah. I was absolutely broke. But I had a friend that worked at South, uh, the South African University of Cape Town. And he said, Peter, he said, we've got a position we can't fill. We need somebody to go out on trawlers off the west coast of uh, South Africa and spend one month at a time, then have a week off, then go out for another month, one week at a time. And all we want you to do is to stand on the back of the ship and note seabird mortality on the net lines. And I said, and how much will Perfect. I get paid? And he said, $100 a month. And I said, $100 a month? <laughs> I said, I've never been paid to watch birds before. And the guy turned around to me and said, well, now you have $25 a week. It was absolutely unbelievable. I was a professional birder getting yeah. paid to watch birds to record their mortality, but at the same time to look to see how different they were and how to identify mm -hmm. them. This was the first start. From there, over in New Zealand, I became a deckhand aboard a small little crayfishing trawler called the Tradewind, operated by a guy called George West. When I went and asked him for work, he told me in no uncertain terms, I can't repeat what he told me, but he told me in no uncertain terms, <laughs> no way. I kept going back to him. And after <laughs> two to three weeks, he said, okay, we'll take you for a trip. I said to him, I said, I'm a great cook. I'm, I'm used to boats. I can work on boats, etc. I had never, ever worked really on a boat, but he took me on board. And <laughs> on that very first trip, we caught more crayfish than he had in three seasons on a single trip. And so You're good I, became, I became known as Lucky English Pete. You can't make this stuff up. I was Lucky English Pete <laughs> in the fleet of crayfishing. And so off we set. And we had this wonderful uh, uh, voyage. He paid me 10 cents a pound for every crayfish we caught. There were some <laughs> trips I earned 100 bucks. Other trips I would earn $1,000. It was really quite something. But always working yeah. on the ships and gaining their respect. I am still friends with many owners of trawlers around the world that I worked wow. on over my seven years of globetrotting in the preparation of my first book, Seabirds, an Identification Guide, published, by the way, in 1983. How fortunate is it? Well, I guess it makes sense that all these places that are phenomenal fishing locations are also phenomenal birding locations. I guess it's for the same reasons. Yeah, it gives you an in to basically go out and, and explore these birds that had not been looked at seriously ever. No, ever. And ever is, is quite right. I mean, um, take for instance, Nate, take for instance uh, a, a couple of birds that we would identify now in the blink of an eye, wandering albatross from Royal mm -hmm. Albatross. When I got down to the Cape mm -hmm. Town and I went out, I was recording what I thought were wandering albatrosses, but some people had said that they saw had seen birds they had more experience than me. Some people had said that they'd seen birds that look more like royal albatrosses. And I said, well, what does a royal albatross look like? And they said, well, you have to look at the eyelid. The eyelid is blue in wandering <laughs> and purple in, in royal. And the royal has oh a black goodness. cutting edge along the bill. And I said, well, that's not workable at sea. There must be other, other ways. <laughs> and they said, no. It took me two years. I was working, I was working off Cape Town. Every single albatross that I came across, I always sketched. So I ended up with a dossier of sketches. Mm. I didn't understand what they meant. But when I then sailed from South Africa to Australia across the Indian Ocean, halfway across underneath Amsterdam Island, 
I came across my first royal albatross. I knew it was a royal. I had no idea why it was royal, but it was not like the wandering mm -hmm. albatrosses I'd seen off Southern Africa. But I didn't know the identification procedure. By the time I'd worked six mm -hmm. weeks on the trawler in New Zealand, I had it all worked out. And I wrote my first scientific paper, the field identification of wandering and royal albatrosses. And it all had to do with how the mm -hmm. wings whiten and the color of the tail. Uh, and there were seven yeah. stages of plumage for a wandering, four or five for a royal. And those principles have now been applied to many of our seabird species. And it's just a question of sitting mm -hmm. down and going through meticulously, feather by feather, wing by wing, working out what makes one different from the other. And this, for me, is the fascinating thing about seabirding and, and albatrosses and seabirds in particular. It's the understanding of how birds acquire adult plumage. And with albatrosses, it yeah. can be quite complicated. So that was the early yeah, days of birding in the Southern Ocean. This is a little bit of a tangent and something I want to get into later, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do it now. Um, a lot of the birds that we think of as wandering albatross and royal albatross have now been sort of further split into populations, species based on where they, where they breed. Did you notice those differences when you were traveling across the Southern Oceans? Did you sort of see those and say, well, this bird is slightly different than this one, but it's still in the wandering albatross group. Yeah. Um, was that something that you were aware of? Yes, it was, Nate. It was. I was very yeah. aware of it. Um, people thought that I had mm -hmm. lost my marbles, to quote my brother again, thought <laughs> I'd lost my marbles. Because if you look in the 1983 Seabirds and Identification Guide, I looked at the mm -hmm. albatrosses in the Southern Ocean. In those days, there were 13 species of albatross. And I'd already right. decided that once I'd finished my seabird guide, I would write my next book on albatrosses. And I already had the title. And the title was A Baker's Dozen. And A Baker's Dozen is 13. <laughs> I might know that. And yeah, so right. here I had this beautiful title, and I was going to devote it to the albatrosses of the world. My favorite birds, by the way. Albatrosses, just, I, I'm in love with albatrosses. And so here I was. There were 13 yeah. species of albatross. And then the French, goddamn them, they discovered what they thought was a new species <laughs> of wandering albatross over on Amsterdam albatross, which they called Amsterdam mm -hmm. albatross. So now I had 14 species of albatrosses. And so I didn't have my, I didn't <laughs> I have my great ruined. title anymore. <laughs> but as I looked, I agreed with the French. I looked and, and, and yeah. it made perfect sense. Here we had a bird that lived on a secluded island. It was its own isolated gene pool. It had its own plumage sequence. It had its own migration sequence. What makes a species a species? Everything I'm saying here suggests that right. we're, we're really looking at a new species. And so it was with the other albatrosses. Take the shy group, the Diomedia quarta, now Thalassartic quarta, mm -hmm. but that's another story. Um, and so here we had the shy albatrosses. There were four subspecies. They looked different. They measured differently. Yeah. They bred on different islands. They'd never interbred. They had different migration. What makes a species? So in 1983, when I published my first book, Nate, I actually divided the albatrosses up and I suggested that there were at mm -hmm. least 18 species. And for the listeners, you will have, hopefully, some of you, that early book, Seabirds and Identification Guide. Go and look in at the albatross numbers. I gave them X, Y, and Z 
uh, preference uh, preferences mm -hmm. as well, so that people should be prepared that they're calling these the same species now, but everything that I look at suggests that they are new species. So eight, I forecast that there would be 18 species. Apparently, I did not go far enough. Now, from the first <laughs> yeah, right. species back in the 1980s, now we have actually 22 species of accepted albatross mm -hmm. species. So 22. Quite honestly, I'll share with you and your listeners that even though the new book is just published, it's almost certain that we will actually split another two subspecies off and that there will be finally 24 species of albatross. But currently, right at this yeah. moment, there are 22 species of albatross. So yes, as I went around the world back in the 1970s and 80s, I did start to notice that there were birds that were really good species. They were what we these days call cryptic species, birds hiding mm -hmm. within a known group and not yet um, elevated to full species. So yes, I knew it was coming. And it's still, we're still in a state of flux. Taxonomy is a huge vortex going round and round and round. Yeah. 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 You can never have too many albatrosses, though. <laughs> no. A lot of people think of, of seabirds as just tube noses and a few sort of ocean going species like skuas, tropic birds, et cetera. But this book includes, and your original book did as well, um, what feels like every species of bird that even touches <laughs> the sea at some point of its life ducks, grebes, loons, cormorants, all of them. Um, why take such a broad approach? to seabirds? That's an excellent question. Um, and it stems really from the 1983 edition of Seabirds and Identification Guide. Mm -hmm. And in that, the first thing that I had to establish was what is a seabird? What do I, Peter Harrison, consider mm -hmm. as a seabird? Right. Well, you were the first one to, to come up with it, so it makes sense that you would have a priority. Well, um, <laughs> and I looked at it and I defined seabirds back in 1983 as those species whose normal habitat and food source is the sea, whether they're coastal, offshore, mm -hmm. or pelagic. My definition of a seabird has not changed. So in this new book, which is appropriately enough called Seabirds, the New Identification Guide, my definition of a seabird mm -hmm. is still the same. It's any bird that, that, that yeah. spends part of its time, part of a year, out or over the ocean. Some birds are coastal, some birds are pelagic. Some birds spend the summer on land, others will spend it always at sea. But if you spend part of your time over the open ocean, feeding on what the ocean provides, you are a seabird. And of course, I would be the first to admit that there are fringe orders, there are grebes, there are mm -hmm. pelicans, there are sheath bills that don't have web mm -hmm. feet, you know, that very rarely touch the ocean, but they yeah. feed on seafood that is collected by other birds. All these things we looked at, phalaropes right. that breed on land in the summer, then go to the ocean in the winter. Right. So this is this was the definition that I actually used. And if you look at that, um, if you look at that, you have something like 434 seabird species. And I do expect mm -hmm. that to actually increase. And I would imagine that within the next 10 or 20 yeah. years, um, we would probably have in the region of 450 to 470 seabirds. But that, 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 yeah. that will develop as, as, as time goes on. Yep. 
what, what, what it results in is this really incredible reference guide to a lot of birds that a lot of people maybe not don't think of as as seabirds but of course they do spend time at the sea uh, things like gulls and terns which are you know pose difficult identification Huge. problems for a lot of people yeah. and and this book becomes you know just an incredible resource for those birds as well in addition to to the mystery of tube noses yeah i, I would point out that um uh, whereas albatrosses and related petrels are pelagic and spend their lives mostly over deep ocean mm-hmm. um as you mentioned, we do actually touch on some of the the fringe orders, such as the the grebes and, and so forth. Um, and the one thing about bird books, up until nineteen eighty three, was that most bird books were geographically orientated. In other words, they were birds mm-hmm. of a certain area: birds of North America, birds of Southern Africa, right. birds of Indonesia. Um, what I wanted and what I changed was that. I wasn't after a geographical area. My geographical area was actually the world, Mm -hmm. the whole world. But my birds were seabirds, birds that live where no others can, the open ocean. And that's what I wanted to bring to people, to bring them into the world of seabirds. Every single bird that you come across that is at the water's edge, um, uh, marine water that is, you should be able to identify with with mm-hmm. not only the old book, but with the new one, obviously, uh, as well. Um, yeah. uh, and it doesn't matter whether they would be, say, a tube-nosed bird in the wrong ocean as a vagrant or a coastal bird mm-hmm. standing on the edge of an estuary. Wherever you are in the world, my book, Seabirds, The New Identification Guide, will allow you to identify any bird whatsoever on the edge or over the water. And that makes it very, very um, broad-based and almost has an urban use. You can use seabirds, the new identification mm-hmm. guide, in everyday uh, life. If you live on the edge of the ocean, if you have a yacht, if you have what, whatever, it should find use on a day-to-day bird-watching scale, not just going out into the deep pelagic zones of the world's oceans. Yeah. As someone who's been involved with these birds for decades, it must be both sort of incredible to look back on what we have learned about seabirds, but also sort of sobering to look at what we still have to learn about seabirds. Um, What are some of the big seabird questions that you feel still need to be answered? Still need to be answered. Well, taxonomy is really our our biggest yeah. Uh, taxonomy is a revolving door. Um, it's a little bit like having um, uh, an index of, of stocks. Every day, you know, you have mergers and acquisitions, etc. Stock splits yeah. and, <laughs> and, 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 and not. And so, for me, um, the 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 big question these days is how many species we have. And we still, that still is an open-ended question yeah. yet. As I mentioned earlier, 434 or so seabirds described in the new book, but that could probably go to above 450. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, but there are still many, many questions uh, un- un- unanswered. Um, species boundaries are one of the, the hardest things to define. And that's particularly true in some of the yeah. storm petrels where we have winter breeders and southern breeders and we have these cryptic species, which yeah. are just actually just waiting to be discovered. Uh, you talked about coming to North Carolina earlier. We're dealing with that too, with the, the band, the band drum, drum storm petrol storm complex. Petrol complex. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, it's a bit of a mind bender. Yes, it strikes fear into anyone, including myself. Yeah. I mean, it is very, very hard. And it's at, that, it's at that time yeah. where, you know, the your knowledge of molt sequences and so forth, uh, birds birds mm-hmm. don't molt when they're breeding. The two are just just too right too expensive to to do at the same time. So you mm-hmm. need your your malt sequences to know whether you're looking at grants or whatever storm petrels out there off your part of the world, North Carolina, yeah. and North Carolina. That's a great, great coast to yeah. be a seabirder on. The potential for seabird vagrancy there that's is fantastic. really quite something. Yeah, as we have learned in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we look at some of these species that we think of as as species in the storm petrel complex, and it's particularly band rumped and, and leeches and. You're looking at birds that not only breed on different island groups, but breed in different oceans. You know, it was only relatively recently that leeches was, the Pacific leeches were considered different than some of the Atlantic leeches, and the same thing is happening with band rumps. It's, uh, you realize how the, the imagination needed to kind of get your head around seabird taxonomy is, is only now kind of reaching where we can, we can understand it a little bit better to the extent that we even can. Yes, and um, I fully expect our our understanding will will increase, especially in the in the intervening mm-hmm. years. You know, as we now move move forward, um, it should be appreciated that um, there are many questions that are still definitely unanswered. And this new edition of the book, you called it a new edition. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, the the new book, the old book had. Um, this new book, had, yeah, completely new book. The, yeah. the, the, the old book had around 430 pages. Uh, it had 88 color plates. It had <laughs> 1,600 colored illustrations. This new book has 600 pages, exactly 600. I don't know how we got it to that, but it's exactly 600. It has <laughs> 239 plates, and it has almost 4,000 colored illustrations. And um, you would think that nothing more can be written on seabirds, but... Um, this is just um, the latest edition, and it is not the final word on seabirds, but I would consider it yeah. to be the new beginning, especially on taxonomy and, mm-hmm. and species boundary. Um, we're going to have a lot more new techniques such as molecular phylogenetics and acoustic analysis to combine with our traditional morphometrics. Mm-hmm. So I do expect, as I've mentioned, the species to actually increase, but for me, the biggest questions that we face with seabirds at the moment is, is this a species? What are we actually dealing with? You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's normal to expect that if something is a different species, it will look different. It will behave different. Right. But this behavior right. business uh, is, is what we really now latch onto. Because if you look at the Castro complex, your band rump storm petrels, they look the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you can take photographs. Yeah. And, and behavior is very subtle. And the behavior yeah. is very subtle. Thankfully, they are different uh, breeders. We have warm water or cold water mm-hmm. um, breeders, warm water breeders, or wet or dry season breeders. And that is, uh, is, is our big hope. But for me, the biggest question with seabirds at the moment is how many species are we dealing with? And that will not be resolved for many years mm-hmm. to come. Um, uh, that to me is our, our big challenge. <laughs> good, to, good. To what know. are we dealing with? Yeah. I fully, ex- I fully expect the yeah. band rump storm petrel complex to number at least a dozen species. Good lord! Yes, <laughs> terrifying. I'm, I'm sorry. That's probably not what your <laughs> listeners are hoping 
for. But, and how do we tell them? I don't know. And I'm supposed to be an expert. You don't know. I do know. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what are the biggest threats to seabirds, both sort of specifically with individual species, with you know rare seabird, rare individual species of seabirds, but also sort of more generally with regard to to all the birds covered in your group in in this book? I would mention first of all that it was Diaz et al. in two thousand and nineteen that actually noted in a paper that seabirds as a group are the most threatened of all birds on the planet. And interestingly, just yesterday, landing on my desk for the first time was a paper on mm -hmm. penguins and the fact that any birds that dove, mm -hmm. if they were foot propelled or wing propelled, any birds that dove and would force themselves into such an evolutionary bottleneck were doomed to extinction. And so that all mm -hmm. penguins are theoretically doomed to extinction because eventually their food prey will run out and they will have, they would have evolved to such a degree that there is no return and they are going down towards the abyss of extinction. And that was just on penguins. Um, seabirds around the world, you know, as I say, we've got 430, there's what, 10 and a half thousand, there are about species of birds in the world. We've got about 450 or so maybe seabirds by the time we do all the, uh, all the testing. Um, and these birds um, live, out on the open ocean. The first thing that I have to say is that the oceans, a healthy ocean, is absolutely paramount to the survival of seabirds. Um, there's increasing pollution everywhere you look. You know, I can go to some of the most remote islands in the mm -hmm. world, Ducey Island, one of the Pitcairn Island groups. I can go to Round Island in the Seychelles. Everywhere I go, there's pollution, there's trash on the beach, there's, there's muck, there's, there's signs of humans, and particularly with plastic ingestation. Uh, many of your viewers will have no doubt seen specials on PBS television of corpses of uh, albatrosses filled with plastic pieces in the rib cages and so on. They've died of plastic poisoning. So, so certainly plastics in the ocean are, are very, very um, lethal. Um, We've got the acidification of uh, uh, the planet's um, uh, oceans as well to contend with, and also the rising sea temperatures. So healthy oceans are really very, very important for, uh, for our seabirds. And of course, thousands and thousands of seabirds are still being killed, still being killed on long lining of fishing operations uh, in floating nets, gill nets, et cetera, uh, spanning across the surface of the sea. So these are very, very um, uh, uh, big obstacles for seabirds. Um, and then of course, a pet subject of mine, no pun intended, uh, is the introduction of, of rodents and other mammals onto these bird islands. Mm. Many of our seabirds, particularly the more pelagic ones, Nate, they, they, they expand out over the oceans during non-breeding seasons, sometimes circumnavigating the globe two or three times like albatrosses in a single off-season. Mm -hmm. And then they come back home. They come back home to an island where their forebearers have been breeding for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There were no mammals out there. They were completely free of any uh, mammal problems whatsoever. There, there was no, no carnage. These days, that's not mm -hmm. the case. 
we have introduced pigs, we have introduced cats, we have introduced rats, we have introduced mice, goats. It goes on and on and on. The da most mm. dangerous are the rodents. And right now around the world, there are several islands, places like Henderson in the Pacific, Gough in the North, sorry, in the yeah. South Atlantic, and South Georgia, also in the South Atlantic, that have been or were overrun with rodents. Can you imagine that Gough Island has many, many millions of seabirds on it? And 80 to 90% of every seabird egg that is laid will be taken one way or another, either as an egg or a chick during the course of the breeding season. So we have less than five or 10% mm. recruitment. This has to stop. Right now we have three big battlefields. We have Marion Island in the Indian Ocean, we have Gough in the South Atlantic, and we have Henderson in the South Pacific. These, these islands are home to millions of seabirds. They are globally important uh, nesting places for the seabirds. And unless they are cleared from rodents, particularly mice and rats, then I'm afraid that seabirds are facing a very, very bleak future. Uh, so I am incredibly concerned about the existence of safe breeding areas for our seabirds. When they come home to nest, it should be on rodent-free islands. And I would urge any listeners mm -hmm. to take any action they can to help with the preservation of seabirds and their breeding sites. This is really very, very important. Yeah. One of the great joys is that in recent years, about five or six years ago, we successfully, finally, after many years of trying and, and working in sections, we took on South Georgia and the rats of South Georgia, and we cleared South Georgia of yeah. rats. South Georgia had been overrun with rats ever since Captain Cook stood on it back on the 17th of January, 1775, and proclaimed the island uh, mm. for King George, his king of the day. Uh, it was at that point that whalers and sealers came down, rats and mice were introduced, and then the island became overrun. Yeah. Now, after many, many years of, of attempts, we successfully cleared South Georgia of rats, the largest eradication program yeah. in the world. Now we are beginning to then- Huge accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're, now we're looking to clear Marion Island, Gough, and Henderson. Mm -hmm. It's globally important. And what it does, it shows us what we can do. We have the means. All we now need yeah. is the will. Seabirds need our help. As I began this little chapter, um, it was Dias who reminded us that seabirds are the most threatened of all, of all bird groups in the world today. They need our help, quite honestly. Are you heartened at all by the fact that some of these efforts have been there are some famous efforts successful efforts to um you know south georgia being one i'm thinking of the cahau and bermuda yes. as well you know given the opportunity some of these birds have shown incredible resilience which is not something you would expect for birds that live on the razor's edge uh, so much of their life are you heartened at all by these efforts yes i am mate i am greatly heartened and i'm greatly heartened also by the response of people uh, and organizations mm -hmm. um, we have various organizations including um, the hewlett-packard foundation which has uh, often really taken on the whole funding of project after project and also 
the average person mm -hmm. contributing just $20 into a, a, an offered hat for uh, the protection of birds or seabirds somewhere around the world. And we have had some yeah. noticeable, uh, notable successes uh, in, in our efforts to conserve the seabirds. So I am greatly encouraged by that. The one thing we have on our side is that unlike land birds that only live three, four or five years, even small seabirds like storm petrels mm -hmm. live 20 to 30 years. So although they might have gone yeah. through bad times, if we can get to a point where we can rid the islands of these invasive predators, the seabirds will make a stunning comeback as we see at South Georgia. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. Um, what is your favorite place to enjoy seabirds? Not only historically, like a place that you've been that you was, you know, still lives in your heart as an amazing seabird place, but also now these days you live in, in Washington and Port Townsend, which is one of the better known pelagic departure ports of the uh, Pacific Ocean. Um, where, where do you enjoy watching seabirds then and now? Huh. I'm an avid fisherman. And I once walked into a shop, a fishing shop here in Port Townsend in Northwest Pacific uh, area. And I walked into my local fishing shop and I was a bit of a novice in those days. And I wasn't quite sure of when I was allowed to fish. And I walked in and there was a young man. He could have only been 16 or 17 years of age. And I looked at him and I said, when is the best time to fish in the area? And he looked at me as though I was a Martian. And he said, sir, he said, there's not a bad time to fish. And it, that's a little bit like seabirding. <laughs> there is not a bad place to go seabirding. Yeah. I'm sitting here now yeah. looking yeah. out the window. I'm looking out onto the sea. Right in front of me at this moment, I've got a collection mm -hmm. of sea ducks, at least six or seven species, everything from buffalo oh, heads nice. to golden eye uh, to harlequin ducks. I've got some uh, loons out there. I see that I've got various species of gulls. And so... The nice thing with seabirding is you can do it all almost anywhere, as long as you're standing, of course, uh, on the edge of an mm -hmm. ocean. And so seabirding can be done anywhere. And there's nowhere that I would say is bad for seabirding. Sometimes even the worst <laughs> looking places like rubbish dumps are absolutely fantastic if you're into gulls, you see. <laughs> yeah, so, love so, landfills. Yeah, they love yeah. landfills. And so nowhere is, <laughs> nowhere is bad for seabirding. But you asked me my favorite place. Well, my favorite place in the whole world, not just for seabirding, but to visit, is South Georgia. Nate, if I had but seven days to live, four of my days would be spent on South Georgia. And you might say, as others will, when I quote that fact to them, they'll turn around to me and say, what about the other four days? And I look at them blankly and I say, just getting there that's right. and they burst out laughing right, exactly. i would I was... say to anyone that's listening <laughs> put on your bucket list to visit south georgia and when you do go down to visit south georgia be sure mm. to add on a little side extension to the antarctic peninsula and the trip which is affectionately known mm. in the uh, tourist trade as afsg antarctica falklands and south georgia you will have the very, very best trip of your life and you will visit an area that is so much unlike anywhere else in the world. It's like visiting another planet. Yeah. Nate, I want you to imagine an island yeah. just 90 miles long. 
It has a spine snow-capped with mountains rising to nine and a half thousand feet. It has 100 glaciers in its 100 miles of length. It has over 65 million pairs of seabirds nesting on the island. The beaches are crammed with penguins, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. There are king penguins, there are gentoo penguins, there are macaroni penguins, there are chinstrap penguins, and there are no less than four species of breeding albatross. If I had one day left in my life to be able to sit on a cliff next to a pair of sooty albatrosses, light mantle sooty, I should say, would be my choice, my favorite place on earth to watch their displays with their wonderful shouting calls, their wings out, and the wild cry of a light mantle sooty albatross. South Georgia is quite simply like no other place. And we can make many islands like South Georgia once we rid them of rats and mice. And for me, South Georgia mm -hmm. is my spiritual home. I'm lucky. I've been able to visit South Georgia more times than probably anybody else on the planet. And I never take it for granted. South Georgia is probably the place where God even takes a holiday. It is without equal in the natural world. It's fantastic. Peter Harrison is the author of Seabirds, the new identification guide. It is a, a sequel of sorts to his pioneering book. It is published by Lynx and it is available most everywhere. You can find books that ABA members get a discount when they order from our partners, Beautio Books. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your book. It is, it is superlative. It's fantastic. I love it. Peter, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Nate, thanks so much. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. As usual, if you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our wonderful magazines, discounts to our partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and a lot of other cool things. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week. Thank you to Peggy Gearhart of Madison, Wisconsin, Steve Hamill of Chesterville, Quebec, Bob and Jen Keller of Vashon, Washington, John and Snow Parrot of Greenville, South Carolina, Chris Regan of East Rockaway, New York, Adrienne Rolligan and family of Glendale, California, Sarah Spotton of Longmont, Colorado, Arnaud Vallad, I hope I got that right, of Montreal, Quebec, Kevin Waltz of Columbia Heights, Maryland, and Scott Wilson of Iyer, Massachusetts, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for supporting the organization and this little show that we've been doing for seven years now. Good Lord. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Balmonte, who wonders if Larids are so confusing in part because their fans are so gullible. Technical production is by John Lowry, who enjoys being the first person on a pelagic boat to spot a tube nose coming in on the waves, because after all, first come, first surfed. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who wonders if having an albatross around your neck is actually a good way to identify those cryptic species. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. One of my favorite things about heading to the Gulf Stream is that two hour ride to the shelf break where the only tube nose you're likely to see near shore is puffiness, puffiness, which is so often quickly evident because of course, time and tide wait for no manx. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aviated.org. I'm Nisbeck. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.